My name is Trey. I'm calling from Masson, Ohio. My name is Shireen, and I'm calling from Rockville, Maryland. Our newborn son, uh, about three weeks old, contracted RSV. My 10-month-old recently had RSV, and it was very, very terrible. He was in the hospital for about five days on oxygen. There's really not much the doctor said they could do for him. There was no eating. Um, There's no medication to give him. And the most we could do is try to get as much Pedialyte in him um, and just give him comfort care. If you've been paying attention to the news lately, you've probably heard a lot of this. Hospitals across the country are seeing a spike in patients with RSV. It's a respiratory illness that hospitalizes nearly 60,000 children every year under the age of five. A former FDA commissioner is sounding the alarm on RSV that is a respiratory virus that is suddenly putting a major strain on hospitals across the country. Children with RSV overwhelming hospitals nationwide, pushing emergency centers to the brink. While respiratory viruses of all kinds are typical this time of year, the recent surge in flu and COVID cases has hit hospitals particularly hard. That includes the nation's children's hospitals, many of which are reaching capacity as they treat kids infected with respiratory syncytial virus, or RSV. The Children's Hospital Association and the American Academy of Pediatrics have called the surge in RSV cases a public health emergency. Who's most at risk for serious illness with RSV and what can parents do to protect their kids? After the break, we put your questions to the experts for the latest installment of Vaccination Nation. We'll be back with more in just a moment. I'm David Gura, in for Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor, SmartWool. Our greatest adventures can't be gift-wrapped, but the smart wool gear that makes them possible can. From award-winning merino wool base layers to must-have accessories and socks, the magic of merino will keep your loved ones warm and cozy all season long. Whether you're shopping for the all-day explorer or the late-night bonfire starter, find the perfect merino gift for every adventurer on your list. Enjoy 15% off your first purchase when you sign up for Smart Wool's mailing list. Let's get into it. Joining us now from Mount Zion, Illinois, is Dr. Caitlin Berg. She's an assistant professor of clinical pediatrics at the Southern Illinois University School of Medicine. Dr. Berg, great to have you with us. Hi, thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Let me start with a basic question, and that is, for those who don't know, what is RSV? So it's just one of those respiratory viruses that are out there that does the common cold symptoms most of the time. But in younger children, especially those that have been born premature or have other baseline lung issues, it really hits them hard and they have a hard time breathing and end up in the hospital. Who is most at risk for serious illness from this virus? You mentioned young kids in particular and those with sort of underlying conditions. Who is who's at most, most at risk here from RSV? Most of those are children like under one year of age. Um, in particular, it can cause infants that are under two months to pause or stop in their breathing. So that's a, a population we worry about or those that were born prematurely that have underlying issues with their lungs and have treatments at baseline and inhalers and, and whatnot. And when they get hit with this virus, it just overwhelms their system and they can't keep up with themselves and be able to breathe. I saw that in early November, the CDC estimated that nearly four out of every 1,000 babies under six months have been hospitalized with RSV. And I know that uh, your daughter was, was in this position as well. At six months old, uh, she, was, uh, she contracted RSV. What was that experience like for you as, as a mother and as a pediatrician? 
it was really hard for me to keep my, I say my doctor brain versus my Mm -hmm. mom brain because, I mean, I could see that she was starting to get sick and kind of go downhill, but I was trying to let her providers make the decisions and whatnot. But up until one morning, a Wednesday morning, we woke up and I could tell she just, she was so fussy, she could not breathe. So I messaged a video to our pediatrician that is my friend and colleague. And she was like, yes, she needs to be admitted and we will go from there. But we also, our hospital was full at the time. So we ended up waiting in the ER for the day until a bed was open up. And she was admitted for five, six days. I think it was that Wednesday afternoon we were admitted and we didn't go home until that, that Monday after. So, and just kind of watching your child there that all you can do is support their breathing and wait for them to get better. And there's not, not really anything you can do is really frustrating. And I know that as a provider, like most of the time these kids recover and do well, but being a parent going through it was definitely a different story and a lot more scary. My wife and I went through this a couple of years back with our youngest kids. So, um, my wife and the baby had just returned from the hospital. I think three weeks after that, our our son got sick. And I remember this debate over whether to bring him in. And indeed, we did that. We brought him to the doctor's office. And then very quickly, we were moved from there to, to the emergency room. What counsel or advice do you give to parents about how to monitor their young children for symptoms and when to make that decision uh, first to bring them to the doctor's office and then to consider, you know, if, if that's not an option, perhaps this is happening at night, to, to go to the emergency room at the hospital? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's hard to make those decisions. And some of these people that live outside of town, it's like a 40-minute drive into any hospital or whatnot. So they parents are like, what do we do? And do we call an ambulance or do we just drive them in? And, and some of them are trying to come into our doctor's offices and things. And so like my clinic personally, I mean, we're sending a lot of kids to the urgent care and the emergency room because we don't have anywhere else to put them in our clinic either because we're so booked and everybody's sick. And then when they come in and if we notice they're sick, then we just have to send them to the ER anyway because we don't have the ability to put them on oxygen or support their breathing in that way. And then it just kind of, they sometimes sit and wait in the ER and you just have to kind of be at the mercy of the emergency room and how busy they are. And it's it's definitely a lot right now. So that you know, at this point, seven states and more than 90% of their pediatric hospital beds in use. Where you are in Illinois, what do the hospitals look like? Uh, you mentioned you had to wait for, for a bed to open up for, for your kid. Um, how common is that and, and sort of how dire is the circumstance in, in hospitals there in Illinois? It's definitely been a struggle. Um, uh, so in Mount Zion, we're right outside of Decatur is the little bit larger city. Um, they do have two hospitals, one that admits pediatrics, but they have less than 10 beds here. And they can only support up to a certain level of like, if they need oxygen and whatnot, they don't have the resources to like keep an intubated kid here or anything like that. So anything that's more serious ends up going to um, St. John's in Springfield, which is an hour away from Decatur. And St. John's covers all of like South Central Illinois. Um, and we get, they get referrals from everywhere. And I know that, um, our hospitalists there have been, well, when we have a bed, we'll accept kids, but sometimes we're full and kids are waiting for beds in ERs, different places, or they've had calls from surrounding hospitals to send kids to them and also from them to send kids there when there's not a bed available. And it's, I mean, kids are still getting other things like um, DKA and like motor vehicle accidents and all these other things that they need to be admitted for. But so many kids are taking up beds with respiratory illnesses that 
it's scrambling for everybody and it's just kind of overwhelming everything. I mean, I know that the director over in, in Springfield has said that one day they had to deny a transfer for a kid in DKA from another hospital. And then the next day they were looking for a kid for DKA to send them out to another hospital because they didn't have a bed. So it's been all the hospitals in Chicago and St. Louis. And I mean, I think Wisconsin even like they, my husband does work at our hospital here in Decatur and he admits the pediatric patients here as a family medicine physician. And they have had St. John's calling them to be like, hey, this kid isn't as bad. Can you take them from us? Because we just can't. And they sent out a list of all the surrounding area hospitals from Indiana and Missouri and Wisconsin and all these areas. Like if we're full, these are the people to try because you might, might not even be able to keep them in state. Mm. You're saying DKA, that's, that's diabetic uh, ketoacidosis, right? Acidosis, diabetic yes. condition, mm-hmm. yeah. I, um, I wanted to ask you just sort of what the course of treatment is for a child who contracts RSV. Um, you've talked about intubation kind of as the most, the most extreme course, but uh, when a child mm-hmm. is hospitalized, what is a, a clinician, what's a, what's a doctor able to do to get those symptoms under control? Well, from our office and keeping them out of the hospital, most of it is saline drops in their nose Mm -hmm. or saline spray that's a little bit more forceful sometimes to loosen congestion and drainage up and then sucking it out, whether that's from bulb suction, um, different electric aspirators, the nose Frida, any of those sorts of things, trying to get the congestion out so that they can breathe, Um, using a humidifier sitting in the bathroom with this hot water running so it steams them, making sure they stay hydrated. Um, Those are most of the things we can do outpatient. And then if it gets to the point where um, wheezing is really common with with RSV, sometimes it helps to do nebulized treatments, sometimes it doesn't. Um, It kind of varies. A lot of times it's just the congestion that's sitting in there that makes them wheeze and those nebulizer treatments don't help. So it's something we use on occasion to try. Um, But otherwise, if they have a hard time breathing and we can't get it under control with that, it's admitting to the hospital and giving them support, whether it is oxygen or pressure support to kind of keep their lungs open with all this congestion. So um, we use what's called a a high flow nasal cannula um, that gives a little bit more pressure to help open up their airways and their lungs and and then escalating from there for other respiratory supports, whether that's um, CPAP or BiPAP or intubation or all those other sorts of things. Thanks to Trey and to Shireen for those voicemails. We also got this email from Melissa. She writes, our now 22-year-old daughter came down with RSV as an infant. What followed was bronchiolitis, a hospitalization for pneumonia, and years of asthma, which she still struggles with and takes daily medication for. Every time she gets a respiratory infection, she gets walloped. That was Dr. Caitlin Berg, an assistant professor of clinical pediatrics at the Southern Illinois University School of Medicine. Dr. Berg, thanks very much for your time. Now let's bring two more voices into the conversation. Dr. Dan Weinberger is an associate professor in epidemiology of microbial diseases at the Yale School of Public Health. Dr. Weinberger, welcome. Thanks for having me. Dr. Monica Gandhi is a professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. She's also the associate division chief of the HIV, Infectious Diseases, and Global Medicine Division at San Francisco General Hospital. Dr. Gandhi, great to speak with you. Thank you so much. Dr. Gandhi, why are we seeing this surge now in RSV cases? Of course, this happens year after year that that we see RSV cases. Why the surge now? So 
I think what's been thought about is the possibility that, you know, it's we're coming off the COVID pandemic and people kept away from each other the last two and a half years. We didn't see a lot of other respiratory viral infections. Um, there are two reasons for that. One were all the uh, distancing, masking, ventilation, everything that we did to keep COVID rates down that led to us not seeing other viruses, especially, for example, pregnant women who don't have a lot of antibodies to RSV when they give birth to, to um, neonates, uh, and also just older children, for example, didn't see RSV over the last two years. And that, you know, makes them have less immunity to it. So when we're kind of coming out of the pandemic, they get it harder. Uh, the second reason is probably something called viral interference. And this is um, been studied both now during the COVID pandemic, but also prior to this with other outbreaks of overlapping respiratory viruses, where if you have a surge of a very high amount of one virus, it kind of almost takes over other viruses. It's You can be infected with more than one virus at the same time, but it's not as likely. They kind of compete each other out. So with all the COVID over the last two years, it kind of competed or interfered with influenza, with RSV, with rhinovirus, with adenovirus, other coronaviruses, human metanumovirus, all these para-influenza, everything else we used to see. And then now that COVID, we have such high rates of immunity to it in the population with vaccination and natural immunity, then these other viruses are kind of roaring back. Nature abhors a vacuum. So mm. um, I think it's those two reasons that are being thought of the most. And we saw this in the Southern Hemisphere this last summer, our summer, uh, really a lot of RSV and even older children, not just the younger ones because they hadn't been exposed. So looking at the, the data, among kids under five, RSV typically leads to 58,000 hospitalizations, up to 500 deaths a year. For adults 65 and older, RSV causes 177,000 hospitalizations and 14,000 deaths annually. We heard from some listeners about what battling RSV is like as an adult. Hi, my name is Janet. I'm calling from Burlington, Wisconsin. My husband came down with respiratory syncytial virus. He is incredibly judicious about wearing his mask everywhere, as do I, as well as disinfecting his hands with hand sanitizer. We don't know where he got this, but he was in urgent care on Thanksgiving Day, and he was as sick as a dog. He could not breathe. He had a horrible cough and um, just felt generally achy and extremely tired. This is Nancy, and I'm calling from central New York. Currently, my entire family has been experiencing the joys of RSV. We caught it from our grandchildren, which we did not know they were symptomatic at the time. It's highly contagious, and it's really a very difficult virus to get over, especially when you're senior citizens. We also got this question from a listener named Kathy. Seniors are being hospitalized for RSV this year. Doesn't that indicate the virus has mutated and has most likely become somewhat more virulent? Uh, I'm just not convinced that wearing masks for a year has caused this spike. Dr. Ghani, I'd love for you to, to respond to that and also just to sort of draw the distinction between how the problems that young people confront when they contract this are different from those that, that older patients contract. Actually, it's really important to say that um, it does actually affect older people and the younger people. The, the way to think about many of our respiratory viruses is that they affect what we call the extremes of age. And so um, this is not just true of RSV, but of adenoviruses or rhinovirus, the older people can get actually quite sick from them. So I don't think it's mutated and it's different. Uh, in fact, uh, RSV does affect older people, usually 65 and older, which is why 
hopefully we'll talk later in the program about why a uh, upcoming vaccine mm-hmm. has been tested both in, in younger, very young children, actually it's more pregnant women, to protect younger children and older adults, because we always knew it could affect older adults. So this, this isn't new. Dr. Weinberger, uh, RSV is, is epidemic, is, is endemic, as we discussed. I mean, it comes back year after year. Um, we heard at the top of the show just about the challenges that hospitals have faced here. Why, why did this particular surge, this outbreak, seem to catch healthcare workers off guard? Why are we seeing the kinds of shortages for equipment and, and beds that we're seeing right now? Well, I think there's two components. One is that the surge is happening at a time of year when we typically don't see a lot of RSV. Um, usually RSV is, you know, highly seasonal. You, the epidemics don't really even start until October or November. Um, and this year, you know, we were really in the peak uh, in many places in September and October. Um, so it caught a lot of places off guard just because they weren't expecting the volume. Um, and then also the intensity of the surge this year was uh, more intense than we've seen in previous years, largely due to the factors that Dr. Gandhi was mentioning, where we have a lot of kids who had either never seen RSV before um, or who hadn't had their immunity boosted um, from natural exposure over the last couple of years. So there were a lot more kids who were susceptible to the virus and adults as well, um, which has led to uh, a lot of activity in the emergency rooms. I want to just ask you about sort of where we are in this in this surge, and I'll play a bit of tape here from Dr. Anthony Fauci talking about pediatric RSV on Face the Nation uh, in late November. In some regions of the country, we're seeing that the hospital system for pediatrics are at the point of almost being overwhelmed. When you have like almost all the intensive care beds that are occupied, it's bad for the children who have RSV and need intensive care, but it also occupies all the beds and children who have a number of other diseases that require intensive care or ICU, mm-hmm. they don't have the bed for it. Hopefully, we're going to see that peak come down. Dr. Weinberger, when you look at, at the data and the spread of this, this disease, where are we in this surge? Are we starting to see that peak coming down at all? Yeah, fortunately, most parts of the country do seem to be pretty far past the peak by this point. Um, RSV epidemics tend to start in the southeastern part of the U.S. um, and sort of spread across the country. And so we saw, you know, Florida and Georgia hit their peak um, several weeks ago, and many other parts of the country seem to be either at the peak or past the peak by this point. Um, So that's the good news. The bad news is influenza seems to be ticking up uh, just as RSV is coming down. So um, you know, I think the hospitals will continue to be quite busy over the coming weeks. Dr. Weinberg, you're looking at the, the geographic spread of RSV to kind of give you a sense of how this virus is moving around. How does that research, how could that research help doctors better respond to, yes, this RSV outbreak, but ones that we'd see in the future? Yes. I mean, I think it's important um, for a couple of reasons. First, uh, for sort of just planning capacity and anticipating when there's going to be a surge. Um, So, you know, as I mentioned, you know, the epidemics have typically in the past followed this spread out from the southeastern part of the country. Um, So you can sort of monitor when the epidemic is starting in northern Florida and Georgia and get some inkling of when the epidemic might be coming towards you. Um, That's important for... um, also planning uh, prophylaxis for kids. So, you know, babies who have who are at very high risk for severe disease um, can receive uh, antibody injections, um, but those are really expensive uh, treatments that need to be sort of timed with the RSV season. 
Um, so it, it's really important to have an understanding of when the epidemic is going to be starting and, and when it might be ending. Um, and we also have a number of new vaccines that are, um, you know, going to be available in, in the next year for pregnant women and, and for the older adults, as was mentioned earlier. Um, and it's possible that those will need to be, that the administration of those vaccines will need to be timed with the RSV season as well. So having an, an understanding of when to administer the vaccines in different parts of the country um, can help to make sure that those vaccines work optimally. Dr. Gandhi, I, I mentioned at the top of the show, I, I went through this with a with a three-week-old kid. And I think something that my wife and I talked about a lot then was sort of, what's the turning point at which this disease becomes less scary, perhaps a lot less scary for, for a parent? Is it having a, a one-year-old? Are you sort of out of the woods at, at that point if, if your kid doesn't have underlying conditions? What guidance do you give parents about sort of when, when things become, if not more comfortable, sort of safer for, for a young child? Well, I'm so sorry you went through that because it's so scary when they're really tiny. Um, it is true, like you talked about, we talked about earlier, that it is young, usually young children, neonates, so just born, just like the story that you just told from the mm -hmm. caller, um, those who are immunocompromised or those who are born with lung problems. But what we've been seeing during this particular outbreak, uh, and this was just a paper that was actually published in Journal of Infectious Disease, or sorry, OFID, uh, which is called the Open Forum of Infectious Disease yesterday, that um, because of the unusual aspect of coming off the COVID pandemic, there are older children who have been more susceptible to severe disease, uh, at least in the Southern Hemisphere. So, so um, this paper was published from Australia, and what happened was that Again, what, we don't have an RSV vaccine yet. We're going to get one. <laughs> we're very excited that we're going to get one for pregnant women, which will protect the neonates, and we'll get one for those over 65 and older. Phase three studies have been completed for a protein-based vaccine, and uh, this, I think, will be available by fall. But at this point, no RSV vaccine. So the way that people would be protected from RSV if they were older children were that they would see RSV the previous year and the previous year, and their, um, and, and, or their mothers would see it if they were neonate. And so because we haven't seen a lot of these viruses, we didn't develop any antibodies. There was a um, paper in Lancet Infectious Disease that showed that over the last two years, the population level RSV antibodies, just protection against RSV went down. Really expected. We, we didn't see a lot of colds. People would always marvel, oh, I didn't get a cold the last two and a half <laughs> years. But, um, so, so, but the problem is that that then didn't protect us and give us the immunity for older children to, to just kind of ride through RSV readily. So, um, so there are some older children who are getting more severe RSV, but that's not the usual pattern. That's just because of the pandemic and the non-pharmaceutical uh, non interventions. The usual pattern is exactly what you said, usually young children immunocompromised um, and with lung problems. And then we do have... Um, yes, as Dr. Weinberger said, we do have a monoclonal antibody for very vulnerable children, palivuzumab, which is just, it gives, it gives people kind of like, just like we've heard about the monoclonal antibodies with COVID, mm -hmm. it gives you protection if you're very high risk. And then we have some antiviral treatments, but they don't work actually that well. We're discussing pediatric RSV for our latest installment of Vaccination Nation. We'll be back with more from you and our guests in just a moment. Let's get back to the conversation with this message from Will, who says, 
What are the prospects for new vaccines that might be effective against transmission, such as nasal mist vaccines that could induce better mucosal immunity? Dr. Gandhi, uh, just get us up to speed on where we are in terms of the the, the research and testing of, of potential vaccines for RSV. Yeah, this is such a great question because we've learned so much about vaccines the last two and a half years. It feels like, you know, everyone now is an expert on the COVID vaccine. And I will say that in terms of the COVID vaccine, we have to we have to really see clearly that what they are doing, what they're really doing is preventing us from getting severe disease. And that um, wasn't actually a surprise, but we really saw that during the Delta variant with all these, quote, breakthrough infections. What happens is, like to put it super simply, your antibodies in your nose, and that's going to refer back to the patient's question, uh, sorry, to the person's question, your antibodies in your nose will come down over time, and they're not generated very well by what are called intramuscular vaccines, the one that you give by shot. Um, but what the shots do is they develop, make you develop what is called T-cell immunity, B-cell immunity. These are really strong levels of immunity that go and hide out in little in places in your body, like your lymph nodes and your bone marrow. And then if you see the virus again, they'll come out, they'll help protect you against severe disease, but not against every infection. So that's really why we've seen COVID so much, us people getting infected with COVID even after the vaccine, but what it's done is really saved them severe disease. Your, your caller just said, give me COVID any day mm. uh, over RSV because she had immunity to COVID. So she, if she got COVID, it would be a very mild infection. So the, so the RSV vaccine... Um, has actually been pretty hard to develop. And we've had really breakthroughs in technology uh, lately. The mRNA vaccines are pretty amazing. It's a kind of amazing thing because that for COVID because the mRNA vaccines, you don't put in a protein in someone's body and then they break down that protein pretty fast. You put the recipe to make the protein, which is the mRNA, and then you make the protein, the body does, make high levels of the protein and you can raise a really strong immune response. So we've seen incredible efficacy of the COVID vaccine, even among those who are immunocompromised because of the mRNA technology. The RSV vaccine that's coming is not the mRNA uh, technology. It is made by the company that we we hear a lot about, which is Pfizer, but Mm -hmm. it is... um, but it is a protein-based vaccine. So it's kind of like the old ones uh, that we use for diphtheria, pertussis, tetanus. It's where you put in two different RSV strain proteins uh, linked with, with something that helps you raise a good immune response. And that's been, again, tested in um, older adults, 65 and older. Phase three, big study, looks good, looks like it's protective against severe disease. And then in pregnant women um, for... Uh, for, to protect the neonate because then you get those antibodies nice and high before you give birth. So that actually, I think both of those are going to be out by fall. In terms of these kind of nasal um, spray, uh, I mean, there is a treatment uh, which is called ribavirin that you can administer by um, kind of giving it aerosolized, but mm-hmm. that isn't really what the caller was asking about. He was asking about giving nasal vaccines. We have not had good luck in developing nasal vaccines for just viruses in general. Influenza, we would have had one by now. Um, we are certainly working on it with COVID. There's, there's a product in, in India that's looking kind of promising, and that would raise your 
high levels of antibodies in the nose and prevent you from getting any infection. And then maybe, maybe Dr. Weinberger can tell us if, if there's one being developed for RSV. I don't see anything. Um, but um, so it, the nasal vaccines like are in the movies, like in Contagion, that movie, <laughs> um, uh, which everyone didn't want to watch after this. Um, they were giving the, the vaccine by nasal um, inject, you know, giving this up the nose. But that hasn't been successful really as a vaccine technology for us. Play a message here that we got from Amanda in Keene, New Hampshire. My two-year-old daughter contracted RSV about a week ago. Um, likely got it from public daycare, which is unavoidable if you have a child that needs to go to daycare and you're a working parent. Um, we were very lucky she did so well. She did not require any hospitalization. She did require an urgent care visit, but it was very scary nonetheless because it changes the way they breathe. It's awful as a parent to witness that and be helpless. And then from a basic care level, we live somewhere where it's a rural hospital. It's first come, first serve. You have to call at 8 a.m. and you're lucky if you get in to see him. And once it's full, there's no other options. So it's still very frustrating for parents that we can't take our children to see their own doctors when they're sick like this. Picking up on sort of the awfulness that Amanda described there, we got a tweet from Sally as well. In 2010, our then six-week-old contracted RSV. Now nearly 13 years later, the memory of him struggling to breathe while sitting upright in his car seat outside of a steamy shower with his face and skin turning blue is one of the most terrifying, indelible memories that I have. Dr. Gandhi, what are the telltale signs of an RSV infection that parents should be looking for? So Sally describing the effect that this can have on, on a young child. A listener named Catherine brings up another symptom uh, in an email to us. My infant, now six months, caught RSV from daycare. What finally pushed us to take him to the ER was his rapid breathing and retraction, where his tummy pulled in around his ribs, knowing that symptom described by our doctors allowed us to recognize when it got serious. How about that symptom, Dr. Gandhi, that, that symptom of retraction? Yes, that's a great point, and that's very peculiar to children because you can really see their breathing. That isn't true in adults, um, of which I serve, but yes, that, that's a very good point that this rapid breathing is just your body trying to get oxygen, and then you can really see that with young children with their stomach, so very good point. Dr. Ghani, many children skipped out on routine childhood vaccinations during the pandemic. How does that factor into this, the high rates of severe respiratory infection that we're seeing during this outbreak? season as parents try to get their kids caught up again, have them having missed a, a number of sort of routine injections? Well, I'm so glad that you asked me that because it's something that I'm, that I'm really worried about. Um, and, uh, and that's because um, actually worldwide, uh, 25 million to 40 million children have missed out on life-saving vaccines. And now we're seeing outbreaks of measles in Zimbabwe, in India, in Mumbai, there's a huge outbreak. There's a current outbreak of measles in a daycare in Ohio, 50 children now with measles. And then we all talked about polio in, um, in, in July when there was a case of paralytic polio in upstate New York uh, and polio circulating the wastewater. So this is one of the biggest emergencies, in my opinion, uh, that UNICEF has been actually uh, calling the alarm on because of school closures because of people not going into the doctor, people being scared to go to the doctor, thinking that there'd be COVID there, lots and lots of reasons, um, just disruption in life, some distrust, unfortunately, in, in vaccines um, and the public health. Uh, we just had less rate of uh, childhood vaccination rates. And that does, that does have an impact here, not with RSV in the sense that 
there isn't an RSV vaccine yet, and there won't be even an, next year for young children. It'll be for pregnant women to protect neonates. But it does for influenza, which is should be a yearly vaccine in children. And then it's certainly having effects on these these infections that we shouldn't be seeing. We really we 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 were actually very close to eliminating measles. We were very close to eradicating polio, meaning no polio on the face of the mm-hmm. earth. Um, and we've had major setbacks to that response. So this is a very big deal. Vaccines <laughs> for anyone who's an infectious disease, it is vaccines are miracles, and um, people need. I hope that they'll go and get their children vaccinated and catch up with their routine childhood vaccinations. Dr. Weinberg, I'll go to you lastly here, and I just sort of wonder what message you have for for parents who are worried again as you look at the data and the spread and where we are in the surge. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, as we said, the good news is that we're on the tail end of this. Hopefully it's coming down now and, um, you know, we'll be out of the out of the woods with RSV soon. Um, so, you know, I don't think people need to panic. Um, hopefully the pressure will start to come off the emergency rooms uh, and hospitals soon um, as the infections start to tail off. Um, and, you know, people should just, um, you know, as Dr. Gandhi said, encourage uh, you know their their schools and daycares to you know improve ventilation and um, try to practice good hygiene however they can. Dr. Dan Weinberger, an associate professor in epidemiology of microbial diseases at the Yale School of Public Health. Dr. Monica Gandhi is a professor of medicine and the associate division chief of the HIV Infectious Diseases and Global Medicine Division at UCSF and San Francisco General Hospital. My thanks to both of you today. Today's producer was Lauren Hamilton. The program comes to you from WAMU, which is part of American University in Washington. It's distributed by NPR. I'm David Gura, in for Jen White. Let's talk more soon. This is 1A.